Well, last Sunday evening, we started this series on how to read the Bible. And if you missed it, I think there should be a recording and some reading material on the website pretty soon. But let me just summarize it for you in maybe one sentence. I think we agreed that the Bible is a diverse and complex library of books that tells the beautifully simple story of God's love for the whole world. A diverse collection of books that tells the beautiful, simple story of God's love for the world. Well, this morning we're turning to one of those books in particular, the book of Psalms. And like the Bible itself, the Psalms reflect a staggering degree of diversity. And I'm not talking here about diversity in genre and literary style, though there's some of that too. I'm referring to diversity of experience. All life exists in the Psalms. This is maybe why, while we might approach other Old Testament books with fear and trembling, sorry Desi, the Psalms are the exception to the rule. They're often the most dog-eared pages in our Bibles. Each of us looks to the Psalms to make sense of life in our joy and in our sorrow, in our successes and in our failures, in our hopes and in our regrets. Now, as you know, I, I like my metaphors, and it helps me to think of the Psalms as a vast mountain range, a bit like the one you have up here. There are high mountain peaks in the Psalms from where we can marvel at the sublime and wonder at the created world all around us. There are flowing streams that remind us of God's unchanging love and sheltered groves where we can rest in God's presence. There are deep valleys where we can acknowledge the dark times of life. And there are open plains where we can fill our lungs with the freedom of the Spirit. I used to take groups of school children up to this particular mountain range. Some of them are here this morning. You'll recognize, I think, the familiar shape of Slaved Honoured and a few other peaks, I'm sure. It's the Morns. And the first thing we did before we began on a particular route through the mountains was to set the map. Now, this meant moving the map around so that the contour lines on the physical page corresponded with the shape of the land all around us. And it's only after we orientated ourselves in this way that we could reliably follow the path ahead. And that didn't always work out either, I can tell you. Reading Psalm 1 is a bit like setting the map. It isn't number one in the Psalter by accident. It has a purpose in coming first. It's there to orientate us before we enter into this wonderfully diverse and vibrant book. Eugene Peterson makes this point in his, books, his book, Psalms, Prayers of the Heart. Describing the Psalms as the Bible's prayer book, he explains that Psalm 1 operates as a preface to the prayers that follow. It provides for us a kind of entryway into the place of prayer. This is what he says. We do not begin by praying, but by coming to attention. Psalm 1 is the biblical preparation for a life of prayer. Step by step, it detaches us from activities and words that distract us from God 
so that we can be attentive before him. So, what better psalm to read at the beginning of a new academic year than Psalm 1? Especially if all those good intentions you made are already starting to fall by the wayside. Maybe this morning we're all in need of a little bit of reorientation. So in the time that we have now, let us allow this psalm to bring us to attention as we earnestly seek to listen to what God might have to say to us today. Now, I've said already that the psalms encompass all of life. And you know, that's true of Psalm 1 as well. If we were to read this psalm in its original Hebrew, we would notice that it begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it ends with the last letter of the alphabet. Now, this poetic structure is quite deliberate. On one hand, it reminds us that the Psalms can speak into all our human experience, from life's first cry right to final breath. But on a deeper level, this poetic structure points us towards a central question in Psalm 1, which is explored in different ways throughout the whole Psalter, I think. And that question is, what is a good life? What is a good life? Now, of course, this question of a good life is not unique to the writer of the Psalms. It's a question that faces all of us. Whether you happen to be an ancient philosopher like Plato or a confused 18-year-old finished with school and trying to work out what to do with your life. One of the most watched videos on the TED Talk website is a lecture given by a Harvard professor in 2015 on this very question, what makes a good life? Well, I checked this a number of weeks ago to see how many people had watched it, and at that point it was at 21 million. Well, I looked again on Friday, and as you'll see, it's well above 23 million views now. There's a hunger out there in our world to understand how life should be lived. People are searching for answers, probably typing them into Google and stumbling across this video first, I think. But it seems to me that there's a great dissatisfaction among many people with how the world encourages us to live our lives today. There's an obsession with being efficient with time, with being productive with a life that seems all the shorter in a world where every second is measured, accounted for, and even documented online. We see this in the compulsion for taking pictures of our lives and then sharing them with the world. If you went on holiday this summer, you'll know what I mean. You probably noticed just how many people experience the world through a screen on their smartphone. I remember during our honeymoon, which was before kind of the advent of smartphones, really, Emma and I took a tour of the Vatican while we were in Rome. This tour was meant to take two hours, but it ended up lasting for over four. The tour guide was so enthusiastic, she just kept going. And we thought it was an amazing experience, as did everyone else, except for one lady who happened to be American, although I'm sure that's got nothing to do with it. 
She never paid much attention to what was being said. She was only interested in having her picture taken against all the famous sculptures. And when we got to the two hours of the tour, well, she decided that her time was up and started complaining very loudly about, when's this going to finish? When are we getting to the end? Until eventually and very dramatically she left, stormed off, saying that she only had one day to do Rome. Well, what did a good life mean for her, I wondered. Ticking experiences off a bucket list. But you know, all of us, in some way or other, have our own answer to the question of a good life. For some of us here, it might be about success, happiness, personal freedom, family, or whatever. Whether we have ever consciously thought about it or not, the choices we have made about how we live, reveal what we value as good. So maybe this is why we need Psalm 1 just as much as that American lady. To bring us to attention. Because this psalm has a very clear answer to the question of a good life. The psalmist makes it clear from that all-important first word that a good life is a blessed life. Of course, this word needs a little bit of explaining in today's culture. Maybe you don't realize it, and I confess I didn't realize this because I'm not on social media, but the word blessed now has its own hashtag on Twitter, and this is probably out of date. It's become a way of showing off how good you've got it. You might see a picture of someone lounging by a pool, for example. Hashtag blessed. A young couple get married. Hashtag blessed. A new baby is born. Hashtag blessed. Emma and I are fans of a comedy, Parks and Recreation. Maybe some of you know it. In one episode, one character, Tom, who is a walking parody of millennial culture, manages to pass through four sets of traffic lights in a row without stopping and immediately tweets, four green lights in a row. Hashtag blessed. Well, this social media trend illustrates how the word blessed has been cheapened in our society. It's been reduced to a boast for the successful and the privileged. But in our New Testament reading this morning, we discover that it's the unsuccessful, the underprivileged, that Jesus calls blessed. Blessed are the poor, he says. Blessed are the hungry, the sad, the persecuted. So this makes me wonder if it's these sorts of people who are described as blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, Psalm 1 offers me some help. The psalmist writes this, A blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither, Whatever they do prospers. So to be blessed then is to be in some sense rooted in God. In some translations you'll find the word happy instead of blessed. But I think this is a little bit misleading. Because I think the original Hebrew word does not necessarily connote pleasing external circumstances like our contemporary hashtag. Rather it's about a deeper joy that comes from living God's way. 
Indeed, the psalm itself goes on to say that a self-determined life, which has prosperity and happiness as its aim, will not result in blessing, but destruction. This, it says, is the way of the wicked. Now, this might seem a bit counterintuitive to us. We rarely find bad news posted on social media with hashtag blessed. But maybe, as Christians, we should. Because although we find it hard to believe that there can be blessing in adversity or trial, our experience of these things together can sometimes surprise us to the contrary. God can draw near to us in unexpected ways to grant us his unexpected blessings. So let's not oversimplify Psalm 1. It does not promise an easy life to those who walk in righteousness. Rather, I think Psalm 1 prepares us, it orientates us for a life in faith. And that life is a life of complexity. In the 149 Psalms that follow, there's a frank acknowledgement, is there not? That life is not always so tidy, especially for those who walk the path of righteousness. But in all this messiness, we are promised a blessing. As if to say that even though it might be winter for a time, there's a promise that the tree will once again bear fruit in its season. Now, of course, a tree will not grow without proper nurturing. This is why the psalmist says we are to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate it day and night. Now, at first glance, you're probably thinking, how can meditating on law be in any way nourishing? It doesn't sound particularly life-giving, does it? We tend to think of laws as confining and restrictive things. But the, the Presbyterian minister and writer, Frederick Buechner, helps me to understand this. He says this. There are basically two types of law. One, law as the way things ought to be. And two, law as the way things are. An example of the first is no trespassing. An example of the second is the law of gravity. So when we think of God's law, we often think of category number one, a compendium of do's and don'ts. But God's law itself comes under category number two, I think. It's a statement of how things are. The law of the Lord, then, is better understood as guidance or instruction for how to live in accordance with the way things are. And of course, as Christians, we are not to think of the law simply as the inspired words of Scripture, but as Jesus Christ himself. Jesus does not replace the law of God or even supersede it. Our understanding is that he completes the law. He embodies the law. Christ is the incarnate word. He's God's law given feet. Now, in this sense, Jesus is an expression of the way things are, pure and simple. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And this law is as real as the law of gravity. And like the law of gravity, the consequences can be just as harmful if we try to ignore it. 
The psalm itself seems to point us towards this truth. You'll notice that while the wicked are referred to in the plural, they are like the chaff. The righteous is singular. Blessed is the one, or as some translations put it, the man. Jesus is that one. And we need his nourishment if we are to live blessed lives. Just as the leaves of a tree need water and light to grow, we need Christ, the light of the world, to help us grow tall. Christ, the bread of life, to give us nourishment on life's journey. And Christ, the living water, to bring us new life. And this is why the psalmist says, we need to do more than just read God's word. We need to meditate on it. Now, the Hebrew word here is a really interesting one and quite unusual as well. To meditate is actually maybe a poor translation because this word has more to do with murmuring or chanting. In fact, it could be easily translated as growl. In other words, the psalmist says that we are to growl over God's word. Maybe in the same way a dog might growl over a juicy bone. Eugene Peterson certainly prefers this translation. For him, the richness of God's law invites us to read it in a way that provokes soft purrs, he says. Low growls as we taste and savor, anticipate and take in the sweet and the spicy, mouth-watering and soul-energing morsels of words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, while I mightn't put it in such flowery terms as that, I think Peterson might be right. If God's law is a living and nourishing truth, then we need to do more than just read it. Think of it like this. It would be a really odd thing if during our worship this morning, Chris and the other musicians simply read the sheet music quietly to themselves. And we all stood up and read the words on the screen in silence along with them. It's only when Chris's fingers are pressed on the piano keys and the guitar strings are strummed and when our voices give breath to the words that the music and our worship comes alive. Well, in the same way, I think we must live the words that we read in the Bible. We must put the example of Jesus into practice. We can study and meditate on God's word all we want and yet never experience the blessing that comes from living it out. It's in our speaking and in our doing that we can incarnate the word of God. By trusting in that living word, we will be truly blessed, even in the hardships of life. So as I come to a finish, let me challenge us all as a congregation. In particular, as we embark on this project of how to read the Bible, that we do not make the reading of this book an end in itself, but rather let us growl over the word of God. Let us be nourished by Christ, the living word, so that in learning how to read the Bible, we may also learn how to live it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.